Now, the next 10 years are going to be the most important 10 years, I think, at least, for human civilization and our relationship with wild nature. Because in the next 10 years, we have to effectively address the climate emergency and the extinction crisis in order to have hopes for a better civilization in the future. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Amy Lewis is Vice President of Policy and Communications for Wild Foundation and works closely with the organization Nature Needs Half. Amy has spent the last 15 years researching the building blocks of collective action. She's brought this knowledge to bear in her own work as an award-winning nonprofit leader and as a scholar of environmental policy. Her research explores the relationship between democratic decision-making and policies that benefit the environment. She says she delights in uncovering the deep forces that determine a society's political and ecological future. Amy employs her knowledge and skills at the Wild Foundation, aligning her personal goals with Wild's mission to activate an international ethic of care for wildlife and wild places. Today, I spoke with Amy about Nature Needs Half to get an idea of where we stand today, how much further we have to go, and how we'll get there by 2030. Nature Needs Half is really an idea that has, is, is unprecedented and has come about as the result of this unprecedented decline in the natural world. Um, and we have set out to do something that we haven't had to do before because we've always had sufficient amounts of nature. And what, what we've learned over the last 40 years from scientific research is that ecosystems require at least 50% of, of, of the ecology to remain intact in order to continue to produce ecological services. If you cross approximately 50%, you begin to lose the functionality of the entire system. So it's not like you have half the ecosystem and half the function functionality. It's like you have 40% of the ecosystem and 10% of the functionality. This idea and, and these conclusions don't just apply to ecosystems. More and more research shows it applies to the entire planet. And if you don't protect at least half the biosphere, you lose the life-giving services of the entire biosphere. So 10 years ago, um, a group of in global NGO leaders came together and they basically said what everybody was saying in, um, privately to themselves, but, but didn't feel comfortable saying publicly. And that is the idea that we have to protect half the planet and we have to do it in a relatively rapid time frame in order to uh, successfully address both the climate emergency and the extinction crisis. No big deal, right? I mean, it's not like it's not like we haven't done this uh, before as a human race. I mean, it's not. Um, gosh, it's a big deal. It's such a big deal, <laughs> and I'm so glad that people. 
I'm so glad people are talking about it in this way. When I get down, and one of the reasons I wanted to have um, you on is so that I have something to point to from social media um, every single day, 10 times a day, I could point back to uh, uh, this recording, and I have been pointing to your site, um, to help people out. Because conservationists <laughs> deal with stuff that is is horrendous. Every single day as their job, they put themselves right in the way of, of, of uh, figurative bulldozers coming their way whatever issue they're working on. And it's really just an issue and they're watching. And there's bi biologists, conservation biologists, biologists all over, scientists all over the world watching their projects get flooded, get blown out, move geographically because the climate is changing and they're, what they're studying is moving yeah. north or left or right or wherever. I mean, I think that it's, a, it's important because we have to do it, yes. But it's also important that people like you are out there holding and waving a flag saying, you know what, we don't always have to be fighting against something and, and going, what did that guy do in the White House again? What in the world? Uh-oh, he went after NEPA. He's going after the Arctic. I am the kind of person, and I think a lot of other people are too, we need some proactivity. We need to be able to, that's, that's hope to me. And, and so for as much as we need to do this for all of the scientific, biological, and every other reason, it's also we need to do this so that the movement can have some breath of fresh air. Like we are taking steps on our own. We're saying what we need. It's not just industry that we're fighting, saying we need more oil. We need more gas. We need more access to the last remaining wildlands that are out there. And so I'm very excited, as you can tell, that, that it's also about that. And it must be really cool to work on that kind of stuff. You're not just fighting things. You're saying, here is the plan. And it's growing and you're getting so much support from so many organizations around the world. You're absolutely right. Nature Needs Half is, is a big vision, a big plan for planet Earth. And I want to, to kind of state something that's implied in that. And that is that we have to plan at a planetary scale at this point in time in our history. And that's the unprecedented part about Nature Needs Half. There's actually a lot of things that aren't radical about Nature Needs Half, but the unprecedented thing is that we're saying for the first time in our history and the history of our planet, we have to come together as a species and have a vision and have a plan to ensure that we have enough nature left to survive. Because here's the thing about Nature Needs Half. We've always had at least half of nature at a planetary level for, throughout the entirety of human history. The really radical thing that we're doing, the really risky thing that we're doing, is removing landscape after landscape after landscape at, a, at a, just a, a, a breakneck pace. That's never happened before. We've never had the decline of nature at such a scale and so rapidly. And that is really the radical notion here, this idea that we can just get rid of all of these, these, these parts of our living green engine and not be affected negatively by it. I sometimes use the analogy of a car engine, right? Um, if, you could probably remove one part of your car engine for a couple of days and your car might still run. And I, I'm not a mechanic. I have no idea how my car runs. Um, so this is, this is extra risky for me. But eventually, if you do that every single day, your engine stops running. And it's the same thing with the planet. For over 400 million years, we've had this living green engine that has produced everything that life needs. And 
right now we're going into that engine and we're just removing one part here, one part there, one part there, and we remove a part and everything seems to be fine. And so we keep doing it. But one day you wake up and you find that the functionality of those incredibly essential systems is, is no longer there. Who came up with the idea of half? Where's the science behind 50%? Okay, so let me just acknowledge that I think that there's been a lot of um, indigenous groups and indigenous peoples who, who have for decades and centuries been essentially talking about this holistic idea that we call nature needs half, but is this idea that we are embedded in a web of life. We have to act with respect and reciprocity towards nature. Nature has needs. We, we aren't just the ones with needs. Nature has needs, and we have to live respectfully in that, um, that, that framework. Um, in terms of Western science, it really started in the 1970s um, with the, the, the Odoms. They were the ones who first published research. And it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't about the entire planet. It was, um, it was about um, ecosystems in Florida, I believe. I may be wrong about that. But um, they, they basically observed that after about half, and this varies by ecosystem, by the way. There are some ecosystems that are very fragile, like the rainforest that require 75 to 80%. Um, but and there are other ecosystems like grasslands that maybe only need 40%. But, but what, what the Odoms observed is that after approximately half, the ecosystem hit a tipping point where functionality began to um, decline precipitously. And that ecological services from the ecosystem, whether that's producing oxygen, whether it's you know purifying water or um, preserving topsoils that those ecological services basically just began to evaporate after half. Um, later on in the 1990s, it was Reed Noss who really began to uh, um, research this and apply these conclusions at a planetary scale and began to um, say you know that's not it's not just one ecosystem here and there it's the entire biosphere that this applies to because all of these ecosystems are interconnected all of them serve each other whether they're neighbors or from a distance in in different ways um, whether it's migrating species genetic flow climate rainfall all of these systems are interconnected and so we have to start thinking about this at a planetary level in 2009 at the Ninth World Wilderness Congress in Merida, Mexico, um, Harvey Locke and Vance Martin and Cyril Cormos of the Wild Foundation uh, launched the Nature Needs Half Network for the first time. And the goal of this was to essentially get people in conservation, talking about this idea and prioritizing the protection of half. And I think as Harvey Locke says, that they just said what everybody was saying privately to each other, but mm. that many didn't feel comfortable or safe saying publicly. And Nature Needs Half was this agenda-building activity that we're going to make a safe platform for, for people to come out and say this publicly, and um, we're going to start agenda setting and getting this on the conservation agenda and later on the public policy agenda. Um, so we've been doing that for 10 years and it's been very needed because initially we received letters from conservation leaders around the world. And I mean, we have some of these letters framed in our office, <laughs> but, but what they were telling us is that, of course, I agree with you privately, 
but I would be crazy to come out in public support of this because I would be laughed at and you will be too. And in the last 10 years, that's changed. We're no longer laughing about the idea of protecting half. In fact, I think we're scrambling to figure out how we do it. Um, and E.O. Wilson in 2016 with his book, Half Earth, really helped um, move that uh, uh, forward on the agenda. And so that's kind of the evolution of this idea and it getting to the level of prominence that it is at now. You know, when coalitions start to form around anything, it makes me feel better because I feel like resources are being used better. That leverage of, of um, synergies between organizations, there's not a lot of waste there because they're no longer in isolation. And I think it came to a head for me when I started looking at you guys and seeing the coalition that was forming there around this because as we talk about umbrella species, um, keystone species, when we're talking about rewilding and connectivity projects, giant projects, small projects, we talk about those for Reed and, and Michael Soule and Foreman and everybody would talk about those so that we could organize around something and we, our heads wouldn't pop off because those species were meant to represent everything that falls in a, under the um, umbrella. And it was an organizing factor. And I'm starting to see, and I have for years, started to see you guys as a, an organizing factor of the organizers, an organizing factor of the organizations <laughs> in this big total voice. And it's been incredibly refreshing. As I said before, I refer back to it to get my energy back up about all of this so that it doesn't feel like it's just a million little battles and there's really no line drawn. There's no front line. It's just it's all the lines and it can feel overwhelming to conservationists. Well, thank you for saying that. And I can totally relate um, to the, the overwhelming um, <laughs> aspect of it. You know, when I'm meeting new people and they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I work on an international team that's trying to protect half the planet in, in 10 years. Um, <laughs> it can be a little overwhelming. Yeah. But, but, but here's, let, let, me, let me make a comparison here. Back in the early 1960s, JFK, you know, it's the cold, height of the Cold War. Everyone's worried about everyone else nuking each other, et cetera. And JFK comes out and he says, we're going to go to the moon. In 10 years, we're going to do what's never been done before, and we're going we're to beat the Soviets to the moon. And because he said that, and because he made that his objective, society began to mobilize all the different industries and technologies and support staff that would be needed and the, the, the innovation that would be needed to reach what in the early 1960s was an impossibility. No one could go to the moon in the early 1960s. But because that became the goal, by the end of that decade, there was the technology needed to do it. And it's the same thing with Nature Needs Half. I'd like to imagine, uh, in this, this, this is a poor analogy for a lot of different reasons, but it should have the same kind of emotional urgency. That we're, this is the new Cold War. That the, the struggle that we're engaging in right now, which is really a struggle within ourselves, about can we live respectful, respectfully and sustainably on this planet as a species and as individuals, that's the new Cold War. And it's urgent and it's pressing and the survival of hundreds of millions of people hang in the balance. And when we come out and we strongly state, this is the vision, this is the goal. And no, I don't know 
all the steps we need to take to get there. But I know the first three or four steps. And while we're taking those steps, we can be innovating the, the, the steps we need to take afterwards. If you make that the goal, and if that's what society begins to orient around, I guarantee you, if we could go to the moon, we can do this. And it is that umbrella statement. At the time it was said, we need to go to the moon, it was currently at that time impossible, completely, utterly impossible to go to the moon. And nobody could wrap their mind around it. But then I love what happens to humans when they become properly inspired to do something and challenged to do something hard. Because in the right context, in the right environment, it can be an incredibly inspiring thing to watch, um, you know, for us hindsight, but to watch what happened there and to go, it can happen here. And the same thing is true here. It is currently impossible. <laughs> Under if you look, you could, there's so many <laughs> arguments that can be made. Like, well, look who's in office, and look at all the resistance you're going to get from the Koch brothers, and look at all the. It's impossible. There's no way you're going to be able to do this. But somebody has to come out and say it, and we have a very solid example, which you just gave in human history, where something impossible was done, and and logistically, technologically, and logistically it's just as complicated as sending somebody to the moon because there's so many billions of moving parts, but all of the people came together and congealed under that. Like you said, and when the administration does change to something favorable uh, to life on this planet, that it's going to be explosive. And I know you guys are sitting there ready with your wish list, with everything that you would like to just walk right into the White House and say, here, we got to work on this too. <laughs> In that big line of people, they're going to be waiting at the White House to do their thing too for everything that got screwed up in the four years that we're now behind on a mission that we were already behind on. Absolutely. And I want us to also think about the White House because it's important. The United States is a global hegemon. It has a lot of influence, but there are hegemons around the world that also have influence. And some of those happen to possess jurisdictions that are some of the most biodiverse and necessary on the planet. And what I'm talking about right now are the BRICS. Um, this is a, a group of countries, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, that are not just up and coming economies, are not just regional hegemons, or you know, in the case of China, a global hegemon, but they also possess, um, four out of five are in the 17 most mega biodiverse countries in the world, and three out of the five are in the top seven most wild countries in the world. And Russia, for example, is a cornerstone, a cornerstone of any successful climate change mitigation plan because the Russian boreal forests, I think for a, a single country, are the largest above ground carbon sequestration that we have. So if we're going to meet our Paris climate targets, that carbon has to stay on the ground. So the, the Nature Needs Half Network, we are absolutely working in North America and Western Europe. We absolutely have a wish list from, from Washington, but we're really beginning to, to focus our efforts to on influencing the BRICS and getting this conversation started in the BRICS because those publics need to be aware of what's at stake. Those publics need to be engaged and they need to be talking about the need for half and demanding it from their leaders as well. And, and how is that going? Is it... Um... You know what? <laughs> so, so the BRICS at this point in time, I'm, I'm sure many of your audience are kind of aware about 
you know, Bolsonaro in, in India and the Belt Road Initiative in China and things like that. So the BRICS right now are really, it's like, it's like everything, everything is happening all at once in them because there's a lot of threats. And there's a lot of things that um, we should, we are right to be worried about. And yet there's also a lot of opportunity. And there's so many civil society leaders that are coming forward. Like, why weren't we talking about this earlier? Why weren't we doing something earlier? And, you know, in our, in our kind of 2020 public outreach campaign, that's really building public support around um, protecting 50% of the planet by 2030 for the next UN Convention on Bio Biological Diversity. Um, our, our kind of superstar country at this point in time is, is India, <laughs> um, simply because we've been getting, our public outreach there has been in the tens of millions um, every single week. And we've been getting an outpouring of support um, from in Indian NGOs um, and, and other Indian civil society leaders. So, so there's a lot to be concerned about and a lot that we have to organize around. And yet I really see people beginning to do that and form the coalitions that are going to be the basis for us getting to half. And how do you visualize this to keep in your head how everything is going, how to convey how everything is going, but also you, you probably can't help delving into the logistics of all this stuff, like how this spreads. Is it, do you have an organic model of it? It's just, it's just going to happen because we're going to lead with the vision and there are some details, but groups are going to have to figure it out on their own on the ground or how does that even work in your mind? Well, so my background actually isn't in um, the natural sciences. It's in the social sciences. I'm a political scientist and I'm a social movement theorist. Good, even better. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's my job to kind of keep these moving parts all together in my head. And I have to tell you, there's some days that's, that's easier said than done. <laughs> I would imagine. Um, so here's the basic model, though. The way a policy gets onto the institutional agenda, where you can finally start fighting over what that policy is going to be and how it's going to be implemented. The way the policy gets on the institutional agenda is first you have to build both public and institutional support for it, which kind of go hand in hand. And I sometimes feel like it's in the conservation sector as a whole, because most of us are natural scientists and most of us are working directly on the front lines trying to, you know, build that, that last stand for that ecosystem or that species, that we've had to sideline side um, building public support. But there are actually relatively proven models for how to do this. They can be time consuming, they can be very expensive, but they're relatively proven models for how to do this if you go about it in a consistent manner. So Wild um, with our, our, and the Nature Needs Half Network, with our very, 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 very marginal budget, are, are going about reaching out to the, the audience, the kind of neutral audience, the audience that cares a little bit, but they don't know enough to know how urgent it is. And we're essentially reaching them with their current concerns. Because most people don't walk around being concerned about the planet or the oceans or that ecosystem over there or that forest or that species. What they're concerned about is dinner tonight. Um, where can I get a clean glass of water to drink? What is my nation secure? You know, things like that. And we're actually doing this campaign called the Survival Revolution, where on a monthly basis, we reach out to these new publics and we say, look, if you care about dinner tonight, which will be April, by the way, if you care about dinner tonight, you care about wild nature. 
And in order to save wild nature, we have to protect at least half of the planet. If you care about um, the, the health of your children and their future, you care about wild nature. Um, and that's why we have to protect half the planet. So we're going about this in a, in a fairly consistent way to expand that support. And there's also institutional efforts as well. And, but, but what we really need is an arsenal of public opinion shifting to the need for 50% of the planet in order to embolden leaders to come out with this ambitious target and, and start pushing policy forward. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. I find uh, a great comfort that people like you are out there doing this. You know, your title is Vice President of Policy and Communications, and it says right at the top, you've spent the last 15 years researching the building blocks of collective action. And what I described earlier was a whole bunch of people, a lot, a lot of people in all the organizations that are really good at doing what they do they do not have much, if any, experience looking at the world and, and looking at moving such a giant thing forward as people who study the things that you do. And so thank you so much. And are there more of you? How many more of you is it going to take and where do we get more? <laughs> well, okay. So, so thank you. I, I, I would love to, there, one of my closest colleagues, Jackie Beatrice, I would love to just be able to clone her and like deposit her all over the world. <laughs> let's work, let's um, get to work on you know, that. But, but, <laughs> right, right. Okay. So let's cloning technology. Um, okay, so here's the deal in conservation in general. And I'm not saying this is, this is not a judgment. Okay. It's just, it's just a fact. Um, but we tend to prioritize our spending around scientific research, um, around land trusts, and um, sometimes around these kind of exotic, you know, community organizing conservation or uh, community building conservation efforts around the world to save a, a specific habitat or species. Um, but we, 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 the, the, I think the lowest amount of um, investment goes into public outreach. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, you really need to invest in it seriously um, if, you're, if you're going to get results. And two, it's hard. Um, it's, it's not easy. I sometimes, um, I, I, I love everybody I work with, but some of the stakeholder groups, I mean, there are times when I think I maybe would like to be out in the middle of the jungle with a bunch of hungry tigers around me than in that, that, that room. <laughs> right then. Um, but it's not, it's not what conservationists are experts at. Conservationists are experts at species, at habitats, at ecosystems. They're not experts at social media, at marketing, at social movement building. And, and so it makes sense where we've spent our money in the past. But I think in the future, we're really going to have to think seriously about how we invest in public outreach, um, how we include social science into conservation, um, and how we, in a very targeted way, um, reach out to new audiences to build support or at least prevent their resistance 
to, to large-scale conservation efforts. The work that you do, it's so important. None of our goals really get achieved if there aren't people doing what you're doing. Um, we can have all the science in the world. We can have really captivating stories. It, but if we can't get them out there, we can't elucidate exactly what they mean uh, in, right. in terms of people who can help that are not our devoted followers, who are also conservation biologists and people in the business, so to speak. But the average people, um, everybody on our board would be mystified by what you do and, um, well, and are so happy you're there. <laughs> Well, thank you. And and as a social scientist, I get where natural scientists are coming from when they don't want their research conclusions altered or watered down in any way. Because in my own social science research, when I put on my, you know, scientific method, you know, objective hat, um, I, I want to behave as a social scientist. But as a social scientist, I also know that messages that tend, that lead lead with the science tend to be less embraced by new audiences and that you have to meet audiences where they're at. So it doesn't mean you water down the science. It just means you prioritize other information first in order to start that, that important conversation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's eye rolly information for people who are in the know. Like, do we really, <laughs> who doesn't know that already? Well, in fact, most of the planet yeah. <laughs> doesn't know that already. And we, we really have to start somewhere. And so, so back to Nature Needs Half and this massive goal. What do we have protected now? What do you consider that is, is okay? There's, there's a lot of things that need to be done. Our national parks are not being really national park managed. Our wilderness areas are not being completely <laughs> wilderness managed. We have work to do on the things we consider protected right now. But that aside, what do we have protected now uh, all around the world? What do we feel like we have protected now and what is in front of us? So I'm so glad you asked this question. Um, it's one of my favorites, and it's actually where I get to be a little bit more technical. Um, so there are these things called the IUCN Protected Area Categories. That's the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. They have these official protected area categories. And as of 2020, about, and this is on paper, um, it, may, it may only be paper protections, it may not be real protections, but on paper, we have approximately 17% terrestrial and 10% protected. Then, in addition to IUCN protected area categories, you have to add this other category of lands called Other Effective Conservation Measures, OECMs. And, and that includes indigenous um, land stewardship. And by the way, let me tell you something. Of the wild and intact lands that we, we have left on the planet, it's indigenous communities that are protecting a little over 37% of them, I believe. Um, and, and that's huge. They, they also protect 80% of the world's biodiversity. So OECMs are very, very effective. So we have about 10% of, of the terrestrial realm under OECMs. So we're looking at right now with OECMs and protected area categories, we're looking at 27% protected. 27% as of 2020. Now the next 10 years are going to be the most important 10 years, I think at least, for human civilization and our relationship with wild nature. Because in the next 10 years, we have to effectively address the climate emergency and the extinction crisis in order to have hopes for a better civilization in the future. Um, and 
So I want to ask everybody, do they want to just spend the next 10 years adding 3% <laughs> to our protected area categories? Um, because it seems like if there's a decade for us to be ambitious, this is the decade to do it. And that's why we're promoting 50% by 2030, because we're already at 27%. We're over halfway there. Now we have to really ramp up our ambition and add 23% more. And, you know, we did the, the last round, the last round of the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, the, the, the targets weren't ambitious enough. They were politically driven targets, not scientifically driven targets, but they were still pretty ambitious. I, I think that we, we added, you know, 10% marine, um, more 10% more marine protected areas, and I think close to another 10% terrestrial. So we want to be at least amb as ambitious as the last round, the, the IG rounds. Um, so I think we should at least be going for 40%. But given that the science mandates 50%, that's what our target needs to be. I feel better now. <laughs> Do you? Yes. Well, I think a lot of people are going to feel better because the question, actually, in all of the reading that you do, if you're fairly plugged in, not super plugged in, but fairly plugged in, and you watch your social media stuff go by, you hear a lot of nature needs half and half earth, and um, you hear everything from, um, you know, Weiss Foundation and all kinds of different areas about work that's being done right now. But even I, and I think I'm pretty plugged in, didn't really know the 27% number to this day. And I have to fly around. I know it's on your site. It's got to be. And it's, I know it's in a lot of different places, but it, you know, it feels better when you, when you know the number, even if it's a lot of paper protected stuff, we're always going to have to improve the protections, you know, and, 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 and police them and make them better. But tell me if I'm wrong, if this is the right scenario, but we have a huge, huge amount of proposed protected areas. An example here in North America, in the United States, is um, we have a list of, of, of Michael Kellett on, on a podcast just a few episodes ago uh, outlined a plan um, that he has that there are 500 national potential national parks that could be added um, or at least, uh, uh, you know, two or 300 that are really strong and the other ones need consideration or study, but 500, a list of 500 places just to be added to the national park system, which would effectively triple the 180 some odd million acres that we have, I think, in the park system now. Right there, just national parks. And, and I know of other things, you know, rewilding North America, Dave Foreman has had out there for quite a long time, um, additions, and we're working on new maps and, uh, and, and new data that's going to show another enormous amount of available places to do recovery, restoration, and protection of wildlands uh, that are in great shape. So if the appetite for the public is, is in the United States because we've had such a bad administration on conservation stuff, but I, I'm sure that this could be applied all over the world, if everybody's got the appetite I think they're going to have for change, for really big things to happen, we have half in the bank in terms of proposed areas, in terms of study and research. It's not like we're out there looking for things to add that are biologically sensitive enough that that really fit the bill for what is needed biologically scientifically am i on the right track for being that optimistic or should i tone it down no no i think you're you're absolutely right and you know the the focus of conservation for the last couple of decades having been on science on maps on 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 on, on tracking the most important places that we need 
is that we now have a wealth of information that can inform policies. And we, we, we essentially have those solutions ready to go. They're right there. Yeah. All we have to do is become excited about them and implement them, which is why we're, we're focusing on public outreach now. Um, but you're absolutely right. The, the information is there. And in places like North America, it is easy for us. Um, we would have a much easier time doing this. There are other places where, um, other countries where their ecology is very degraded. And there's going to have to be a lot of work to restore and rewild and to also sustainably manage lands that, that people live on because we can't displace those people. But there are ways. We do have all sorts of models and all sorts of validated solutions that work to, to, to keep the ecology intact and also keep the communities intact that live on them. So the, in, in other countries, there's going to be a variety of, of solutions. In North America, however, it's, it's kind of about more about protecting what, what is left versus having to go back and restore a lot. Because people like you exist, we have a fighting chance of actually fighting back against mo most of what it is from an industry side. It's not a representation of the populace anywhere in the world that I am aware of. It's not like there's a, a country out there that's all oil barons and executives. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's just a tiny, <laughs> tiny... But oil India. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, they, but they don't have the same resources. The people don't have the same resources. And I think it bears repeating that um, the conservation movement globally just hasn't had its eye on the, the PR that needs to happen, the education that needs to happen. And, and for this to really go, I don't know how you would compare it to Kennedy's moonshot, but um, it's one of the most crucial pieces to getting to that moon. You know, we've got to captivate people's imaginations and minds and also not be afraid. I think the reason a lot of conservationists might hold off on this, like being super public about it, is just it opens up a whole can of hope. I mean, and, and people have had their hopes dashed. <laughs> and why would you do that to yourself yeah. if you don't believe it? So I think helping people believe it, showing them the 27% and how we can get there, how we can get to 50% is like, isn't that the, the core crux of, of your job, among other things? Absolutely. And, you know, let me, and not to, and not to dash your hopes, but to kind of inoculate um, the audience against what we're specifically up against in, in the next three decades and why we're pushing so hard for 50% by 2030. So this, this stat I'm about ready to give you comes from the Global Alliance for um, Builders and Construction. And it's not, this is not a conservation stat. This is their own stat. And, and they say that by 2050, we're going to add 25 million kilometers of road to the planet by 2050. That's enough road to encircle Earth 600 times. And I don't think I need to tell your audience how devastating roads are to wild places. Additionally, by 2050, we're set to double the square footage of urban areas. And there's a lot of talk about protecting 30% of the planet by 2030 and then kind of building up to this ambitious goal of 50% by 2030. My question is, when is it going to be easier and more feasible to protect half the planet? In 2030, when we still have a lot of that, those wild areas remaining and intact, 
or in 2050 when we have to go back and remove 25 million kilometers of road and and restore all the wild areas that they um, decimated. I would say uh, the former, <laughs> not the latter. And, and <laughs> roads are so damn old fashioned. My God. I mean, I I realize that I will be long gone before the United States ever even breaks ground on any kind of significant rail system, rail transportation system. Fortunately, though, uh, the last Koch brother will be gone long before that. And maybe some of the air for this whole road thing. I mean, roads are just so damn primitive. We're, we're talking about, you know, on one hand, you've got these guys who are thinking about different ways of getting around the planet, like Musk and, and others. And while they have all kinds of crazy ideas and they don't have a, a, a science or a biology <laughs> background to guide them, that's what we're for. They're at least thinking about a future that doesn't entail such weird primitive stuff. I think the only reason something like that's even on the books is because we've got some aging people out there. It's a last gasp, I hope. Um, and I hope that not all or even a significant portion of those roads actually end up being built. And, and the only thing pushing against that would be this big vision. You can't have road here. This is going to be this. And we said in another podcast a while right. back with someone that the only way to stop it is not to just put your arms around a place that you love and say thus far and no further. We have to have plans. We have to say, no, that can't go there or that can't be expanded or that can't be paved because we already have plans for it. So many times in history in the United States, it's been shown that just having a place as a wilderness study area completely and utterly shuts down all talks of people moving in for oil and gas development. It didn't even need to be wilderness designated stuff. It just needs to be talked about and it, sh it turns them away. They go look for other places because they know there's too much trouble here. So you're absolutely right. In my mind, you're completely right. We need to be talking about this stuff now and in the biggest way possible because it's going to be nearly impossible waiting too much longer. and We just really can't afford to wait. Yeah, also, you're right, road, roads are really primitive. And I'm pretty sure that as a kid, when I was watching sci-fi movies, like every every projection of 2020 had us on hoverboards. So I'm really hoping someone will come along and in, invent the hoverboard and, and and then they'll become a sponsor of Nature Needs Half. No roads, use your hoverboard, Nature Needs Half. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, if we're not there to say that we have uh, our own plans, then we'll end up where we are today because we've always done that. We um, have largely, you know, had to protect areas we didn't know were under threat until they were because we weren't planning on doing anything with those areas or we mistakenly thought they were more protected than they were. They weren't threatened. But the only way that I can see, and I know, man, everybody uh, that listens to us <laughs> agrees because we've been in these discussions a lot. We got where we are today just by wrapping our arms around saying, no, you can't do this. And that's good. I mean, we wouldn't have the protected places that we do if that didn't happen. But without a proactive plan for the rest of the stuff, they're just going to fill it in with roads and cities. To many people, nature is just empty land until you, you make them aware that it's something else. <laughs> what can people be doing right now to learn more to get more informed about this and stay in the loop? Thank you um, for asking that question. So the, what we're really pushing for um, early in 2020 is to in recruit as many ambassadors and Nature Needs Half influencers as we can for our campaign, The Survival Revolution. 
So they could go to natureneedshalf.org slash survival hyphen revolution. And um, they can sign up to become an ambassador there. They can learn more about that campaign. And that campaign is building awareness around the need for 50% by 2030 in advance of the UN Convention on Biological Diversity in October of 2020. After that, we will be using it more and more to um, sustain and support national level coalitions as they work for half within their territories. Um, but for this year, we're focusing on the global level. Additionally, um, I, I just like it if everybody could kind of keep their eyes on the UN Convention on Biological Diversity and um, when there's public comment, um, when there's opportunities to sign petitions like the Global Deal for Nature, that's Global Deal for nature.org, um, that they do so, so we can really show that there's public support for protecting 50% of the planet by 2030. And you've mentioned hope two times already in this podcast, and I, I just, I didn't want to let that, that go away, because I feel like hope has, has kind of gotten a bad rap lately, because of the marvelous Greta Thunberg, and I love her and everything she says. Um, there's something she says about hope, though, that, you know, we don't need your hope, we need action. And I would like to build on that a little bit, because over a millennium ago, a man named Augustine of Hippo said something about hope that I think is relevant, and that is, hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and the courage to see that they do not remain as they are. And I think that's what we need to be harnessing right now. Um, if you don't want to call it anger, don't. Call it passion. Um, but we need to be harnessing a sense that it's not right what's what's happening in the world to the biosphere. It's not right. And we have the fortitude to see it changed in our lifetimes. Amy, thank you so much for being on Rewilding Earth today. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.